To bet that extraordinary things will happen to you starting today, now that we are winding down the week and counting down the hours, minutes, and perhaps even seconds before the weekend arrives, people are smiling more. Now, can you blame them? Well, of course not. (laughs) Well, to help you out, it's my pleasure to offer my congratulations because you have done the smart thing by tuning in to the 11th of March 2022 episode of the one and only Greenwich and Town for All Seasons show podcast hosted by me, the one and only, as far as I know, Jeffrey Bingham Mead, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, long known as the Gateway to New England. I'm so glad that you could join us for today's show. Now, there's no place like this one where you get to hear about some of the history and culture of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut. Founded on July 18, 1640, Greenwich is one of America's most interesting and extraordinary communities. Whether your roots go back nearly 400 years or even 400 seconds or somewhere in between, whether you are here to stay or just passing through, we welcome you with open arms. You are a part of our history. Congratulations. Now, How did you like the snowfall that we had on Wednesday? Well, on last week's show, I remarked that I had some questions about the accuracy of the Groundhog Day prediction of six more weeks of winter. I'd seen forsythia bushes burst into vibrant yellow blooms way before before schedule in mid-country. Greenwich and daffodil shoots uh, emerge from the ground, too. So everything seems to be going in all sorts of directions. What can I say? The Greenwich History uh, Podcast uh, today is, as always, made possible by Peter F. Alexander, L.A., of Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum, United States of America, Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Let's get on with today's business, shall we? Coming up on today's show. As we observe Women's History Month, we are not just celebrating women from Greenwich's remarkable history, but also recognizing those women and women's organizations in the present day who are actively engaged in both scholarship and preservation of Greenwich, Connecticut's fascinating history. Now, founded in 1901 by Mary Harriman, a 19-year-old New York City debutante, the Junior League has been serving communities across the United States for generations. The Junior League of Greenwich, chartered in February 1959, has played a continuous role in designing and establishing a wealth of projects and services for the community. Now, one of those projects was the research and publication of the Great Estates, Greenwich, Connecticut, 18. 18- 80 to 1930 book. Now, this book depicts what the late town historian William E. Finch called, quote, the flowering of Greenwich, the changing of a farming community into a quiet, genteel town interested in community improvement and appreciation for its historical past. 
The period 1880-1930, perhaps the zenith in Greenwich's nearly 350-year history, was the age when the word Greenwich became synonymous with millionaire. So, for the next several weeks, I will be sharing selections from The Great Estates book. On today's show, you'll hear about one of the shore area estates, Horse Island House. In the February 3rd, 1922 edition of the Greenwich News and Graphic Town residents learned about a new technological marvel under the headline, quote, wireless music, unquote. And then the story said, in a short time, wireless sending outfits will be as common as wireless receiving stations. Now, my friends, does that sound familiar to us in the early 21st century? Well, I would hope so. As we continue to mark the 125th anniversary of the establishment of the Greenwich Police Department, I'll share news of burglaries, arrests, and crimes committed and recorded from throughout Greenwich's history. In 1911, a strip of land on the hillside behind the Havemeyer building off Greenwich Avenue was developed for the creation of what might have been the first public playground for the town's children. I'll have some information about that. Now, did you know that an application for permission to operate a bus line for, quote, commuters, common laborers, and school pupils, unquote, between Round Hill and Greenwich was filed in 1942? Well, it was, and I'm not sure what happened, but I'll have some background information on that for you. I'll also share with you a 1922 published early history of the fashionable Rock Ridge Residential Park section of Greenwich. This is formerly the Zacchaeus Mead Farm. Using material found in the book Greenwich Before 2000, an updated and revised edition of Before and After 1776, the comprehensive chronology of the town of Greenwich, you'll hear trivia from the town's 18th and 19th centuries. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls around the world, stay where you are. I'll have all this and lots more as today's show unfolds. Stick around. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after these important messages. Support is made possible by... An award winner of the Landscape Architecture Foundation, Greenwich-based Peter F. Alexander, Landscape Architect of Site Design Associates, believes that landscape design has the capacity to transform perceptions and ultimately inaugurate a deeper respect for the natural environment. Since 1979, Peter F. Alexander has been tireless in his commitment to excellence in project design, management, implementation, and personal service. Building upon a cornerstone of experience and trust, he believes that each landscaped project design expands the interpretation of design, craftsmanship, and sustainability. Peter F. Alexander is the founder of the Soundshore Environmental Information Institute. His notable projects include the Olympics Training Center at Lake Placid, New York, the Master Plan of the Calf Island Conservancy in Greenwich, Connecticut, numerous residential projects, and much more. Proudly collaborative in his approach, Peter F. Alexander's creations of immersive experiential landscape spaces cultivates a sense of community and connections that are second to none. Learn more about Peter F. Alexander, landscape architect at sitedesignassociates.com. Again, that's sitedesignassociates.com. You can also call 203-869-8632. Again, that's 203-869-8632.
By all means, when you contact Peter F. Alexander, please be sure to mention that you heard about him through the Greenwich A Town for All Seasons show podcast with Jeffrey Bingham Mead. Thank you. We also welcome Long Island Sound Institute. The Long Island Sound Institute understands that a bright future relies on brilliant ideas and methods. The Institute aims to use modern planning and implementing new technology to conserve Long Island Sound. Looking forward to its stewardship in the area. To learn more about LISI, go on the web to www.li. S-I-S-T-U-D-Y dot info or call 475-897-5444. Again, that's 475-897-5444. And we are welcoming a new major supporter to the show. The Ambassador Museum, United States of America, is in the process of organizing and implementing a virtual Ambassador Museum based in Greenwich, Connecticut. It seeks to be a tribute to ambassadors, their families, experiences, and the millions of lives that have been affected by them. The Ambassador Museum, United States of America, is looking for records, photographs, and videos of ambassadors and their families, or people who have been associated with ambassadors in the past. Monetary donations are also welcome. Funding supports the Virtual Museum, which is receiving support from the University of Denver and the Joseph Corbell School of International Studies. Throughout the town of Greenwich's 20th century history, a number of ambassadors lived here, perhaps the most prominent being Ambassador Joseph Werner Reed. He grew up on historic Denbig Farm off Riversville Road in the backcountry and served as ambassador to Morocco and as chief of protocol of the United States, among other diplomatic assignments. On future shows, we're looking forward to featuring histories of those from Greenwich who served the nation in various ambassadorial roles. You can learn more at amusa.info. Again, that's amusa.info. You can call 203-347-4604. Again, that's 203-347-4604. Or you can write to Post Office Box 5002, Greenwich, Connecticut, 06831. Again, that post office box 5002, Greenwich, Connecticut, 06831. You, Kevin M.J. O'Connor, Vice President of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, knowledgeable in the complexities of the financial markets with a passion for servicing clients and their financial needs. My friends, learn more at jeffreymatthews.com or call Kevin M.J. O'Connor at his Greenwich office, telephone 203-485-7595. Again, that's Kevin M.J. O'Connor, his Greenwich office at 203-485-7595. Thursday, March 3rd was Boat Ride Day with show sponsor Peter Alexander and his informal group of friends called the Old Geezers Club. <laughs> when, when Peter Alexander texts and says, quote, meet in Cuscob Harbor for boat ride and lunch, quote unquote, you go. Now, I'm not an old geezer by any means. I suppose I'm in training, but so what? So, you know, it was a warm day. 
I was fresh back from Hawaii, and I really wanted to be outdoors, so guess what? Off I went. Now, the day was a balmy one by New England late winter norms. We went where we met, we cast off from Cuscub Harbor and cruised along the shoreline. Great estates on Meads Point, Chimney Cove, and Belhaven. The sight of those shoreside estates was truly awe-inspiring, just as they must have been since the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Now, we ended up at the Indian Harbor Yacht Club's dock on Greenwich Harbor and proceeded for a fun-filled lunch with more than our share of colorful conversation. Now, the Junior League of Greenwich, chartered in February 1959, has played a continuous role in designing and establishing a wealth of projects and services for the community of Greenwich, Connecticut. One of those projects was, a re was the research and publication of the Greatest States Greenwich, Connecticut, 1880-1930 book. The book depicts what the late town historian William E. Finch called, quote, the flowering of Greenwich, unquote, the changing of a farming community into a quiet, genteel town interested in community improvement and with appreciation for its historical past. The period 1880 to 1930, perhaps the zenith in Greenwich's nearly 350-year history at the time of the publication, was the age when the word Greenwich became synonymous for the word millionaire. Now, my friends, uh, in honor of uh, Women's History Month and all of the great and fabulous things that women have done uh, for the town of Greenwich, uh, I wanted to share selections from the Great Estates book. Uh, and um, and so on today's show, you'll hear about one of the shore area states that I took in that day from the placid waters of Long Island Sound from Peter Alexander's boat. And that great estate is the one known as Horse Island House. The Great Estates Greenwich, Connecticut, 1880-1930 book published by the Junior League of Greenwich is available to borrow from the Greenwich Library System. So go to any of your Greenwich Library uh, branches and, and you should find a copy there or ask the librarian to help you. You can also purchase a copy from the Greenwich Historical Society's gift store or from your favorite online book vendor. Now, learn more about the Junior League of Greenwich online at jlgreenwich.org. Its headquarters is at 231 East Putnam Avenue in Greenwich in the heart of the Putnam Hill National Historic District. And you can also call the Junior League of Greenwich at area code 203-869-1979. So with that, let's get started on our journey into the past, especially concerning Horse Island House. As many estate owners sought versions of medieval castles for their homes, so did the builder of Horse Island House. But this estate appears a more genuine version than most, with its surrounding moat actually the waters of Long Island Sound. The illusion is especially strong from the landside approach. Entry is over a causeway where one might expect to see a castle drawbridge, and as the visitor arrives, the height of the house looms colossally ahead. But it is the back of Horse Island which is most often seen, as it is a familiar landfall for sailors in Captain Harbor and the Sound Beyond. For those who knew the land in earlier times, such a house might seem a bit pretentious use for it. Years ago, the island could only uh, could be reached only via a land bridge at low tide, but horses wandered across it for grazing. 
Local legend has it that one horse refused to return to the mainland pasture and took up permanent residence there, thus giving the island its name. For many generations, the Mead family owned and farmed Meads Point, and Horse Island was assumed to be part of their property. In the 18th century, this title was challenged by a local resident named Reynolds, and a long court fight ensued, but the Mead ownership was assured. Too rocky to cultivate, the lying 500 feet offshore, the eight acres would have been of little use uh, to a farmer. In 1888, Charles Mead sold the island, and it passed through various ownerships until 1920, when the land and causeway rights were purchased by James P. Cahill, who lived from 1873 to 1955, president of J.P. Cahill & Company, a New York brokerage firm. Cahill commissioned Frank P. Whiting to design the first house the island had known. This architect had spent his early training in architectural practice in the offices of Ernest Flagg. At the time, the firm was designing such landmark buildings as St. Luke's Hospital and the Singer Building in New York. At that time, Whiting may have established a working relationship with the Clark family, owners of the Singer Company, because he was later commissioned by them to do other architectural assignments. Although Whiting probably did many residential designs, his most famous work is the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York. In 1925, Frank P. Whiting could say of Horse Island that the house was, quote, never designed, it just naturally grew out of the peculiarities of the site, unquote. The varied roof heights and the manner in which the house rises from three different foundation levels almost give truth to Whiting's claim. But in fact, the designer carefully nurtured its growth and in two separate stages. He designed a graceful Tudor-style house on the island's crest for Cahill, and he was proud enough of his plan to exhibit it at the Architectural League of New York. Granite quarried from the site to provide the basement was then dressed to build the thick stone walls. A contemporary magazine article reported that many of the island's chestnut trees supplied wood for the stylish half-timbering that was becoming popular during that era. A heavy front door opened to a foyer with an oak and glass-paned inner door. From here, visitors entered a spacious hall from which the main rooms opened. Most of the decorative wood was white oak. Doors were made with handsomely carved panels and fine custom-made hardware. The stairs to the upper floor had balusters and handrails of carved oak with simple rosettes inscribed atop the newel posts. The living room was, quote, high English style, unquote, with a stone fireplace and tall peaked ceiling braced by beautifully shaped oak beams. Paneling along the fireplace wall disguised a secret stairway which led to a minstrel's gallery above. This room was well, as well as the sun porch, opened to stone terraces overlooking the shore. In addition, the dining room had a breakfast porch for summer meals. On the second floor, there were four large bedrooms, each with its own bath, three of them facing the open water. The third floor held another four bedrooms, probably intended for staff. A garage with chauffeur's quarters and a billiard room completed the amenities for country living during that period. 
How long Cahill occupied the island is uncertain, but in March 1923, Whiting acted as agent in advertising the property for sale. The purchaser was George H. Townsend, who lived from 1884 to 1957, a rising entrepreneur whose main interests included fast cars and powerboats. Townsend was born and raised in New Haven, where his father was a judge of the U.S. Court of Appeals and a law professor at Yale. As a Yale undergraduate in the early 1900s, young Townsend pursued his fondness for cars. He was a founder of the Yale Automobile Club and a frequent participant in road races. After graduating in 1908, he was briefly in automobile manufacturing in California, but in 1912, he launched his first great business venture with Harrison Boyce. Boyce, inventor of a thermometer for automotive cooling systems, needed capital to mass-produce his invention. Together, they formed the Motometer, or Motometer, company, and Townsend became its president. Motometers were aggressively marketed throughout the burgeoning automobile industry for use on car radiators, and during World War I, the company adapted its design for use on Army and Navy airplanes and industrial machines. During the 1920s, there was a demand for new techniques to place the gauges on dashboards rather than on radiator caps, and Townsend cornered the market by buying a company that produced dashboard panels. During this period, George Townsend and his wife, the former Carolyn L. Detterer, acquired the Cahill home, although they realized that it would hardly hold their family of seven lively children. Retaining the house's original architect, Townsend added an easterly wing to triple the size of the home and to change it from stylish house to a fantasy castle that is there today. The old and new sections were linked by a tall square tower crowned with an ornate wind vane bearing the signature of the island, the copper figure of a horse as a creature of both land and sea with wings of a dragon and tail of a fish. This turret contained a hideaway room, no more than eight by eight feet with a tiny fireplace. This was Townsend's array, with no children allowed, where he could enjoy eagle's eyes views of water and yet unspoiled land. From Horse Island, the shores of Greenwich still appeared undeveloped except for the other great estates which could be seen nearby, in Isarden, Walhall, Indian Harbor, and later, Frewcliff. Some of the house's renovation involved redesigning the existing wing, such as making the former dining room into a living room, since the Townsends found the original room too somber for their taste. With such a large family, new bedrooms had to be added, and the number, including servants' rooms, rose from 8 to 13. The Townsends had planned a master suite for themselves that would include bedroom, dressing room, and office. But seeing the space laid out, they decided to leave one large room open so that they could see land and water views through the casement windows. While the new addition was in keeping with the house's Elizabethan style, the interior decoration was emphatically Italianate. Decorative tile imported from Italy, Italian-style furniture, and antique wall hangings contributed to the Palazzo mood. Where genuinely old materials were not available, illusion was created, and walls were even smoked to appear old. 
The most spectacular of the newer rooms was the dining room, reached by a short flight of steps through a stone wall. It could have been the banquet hall of an Italian palazzo. Romantic lighting was provided by branched wall sconces that bore winged horses with fish-like tails, repeating the signature introduced by the house's weather vane. At the far end of the room, a lunette by Everett Chin, recessed over the loggia door, depicted a Venetian revel with a parrot and other masked figures. The carnival scene was continued on two decorative panels for doors flanking the fireplace. The fireplace itself was a massive antique of Italian carved stone adored, adorned by the gold and polychrome arms of the Townsend family. One of the room's many touches of gilt that included covers for the heating registers. Any somberness suggested by the massive pattern of beams overhead was dispelled by glimpses of sky-blue ceiling between the timbers, and an iron-framed glass door admitted daylight from the plant-filled loggia beyond. A seemingly ancient trestle table was designed and built for the room complete with wormholes, quote-unquote, to feign age. During the years that the Townsends owned Horse Island, the dining room was famous as the scene of their Sunday night suppers. Quote, this was the one night of the week when no one was allowed to go out, unquote, called, recalled Annie Townsend Wallen. Quote, but we could bring any friends we wanted, and there would sometimes be 50 or 60 people for supper, unquote. Her sister, Molly Townsend Gibbons, added, quote, Mother never seemed to mind that she was a great cook and loved people, unquote. Both sisters remember happy years growing up on the island with plenty of ways to entertain themselves. Townsend commuted to his New York office aboard his boat, Cesarek. He eventually owned three boats by that name, ranging in length from 54 to 73 feet. The children had their own sailboat, named Cheerio, which they moored off the island's dock. The family enjoyed skeet shooting, and the island had a shooting house as well as a tennis court. For further entertainment, the children often rode at their father's horse farm in Glenville. A staff of about 15, including gardeners, maintained the estate and looked after the children when the parents were traveling. Mrs. Wallen remarked that it was a, quote, carefree, unquote, life for the young with winters in Greenwich and summers at St. Regis Lake in the Adirondacks, and that, growing up during the Depression, the Townsend children were not allowed to work lest they take jobs from those who truly needed them. The island was the scene of of two Townsend girls' wedding receptions in the 1930s. Molly, Mrs. John Gibbons, and Kay, who married Dick Chapman of Round Island, both entertained wedding guests in the estate's waterfront gardens. At the end of the 1930s, the Townsend children had grown and their parents were divorced. George Townsend lived on at Horse Island for a time with his second wife, Vera Plushkoya, a former concert harpist, but he sold the house in 1939. Not all the owners have thought life on 
Horse Island as carefree as the Townsend girls did. In recent times, residents found staffing more difficult, and maintaining a house reached only by a narrow causeway was never simple. A succession of owners dealt with the house's mixed blessings, making alterations to suit their lifestyles. In 1985, the house was sold once more, and it is now home to a family with several children, as its earliest owners intended it to be. May I let you in on a secret? In my not-so-humble opinion, nothing beats the comfort and soothing qualities of a good, hot cup of coffee in a historical setting. The Coffee for Good Cafe is located in the stone 1858 Solomon Mead House at 48 Maple Avenue behind the Second Congregational Church of Greenwich. My friends, this is not your ordinary high-end retail coffee shop. Coffee for Good is a new, unique, nonprofit partnership with the Second Congregational Church and Abelis. It employs and trains people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. Coffee for Good's authentically historical, legendary ambiance will make you want to sip and stay for hours. Believe me, I'm there. <laughs> Enjoy exquisite indoor and outdoor dining. The service is attentive and friendly. And did I mention, ready for this, that the parking is free? Hey, just saying. Oh, and let me throw this into this free Wi-Fi. Need a place to study, work, read, meet up with friends, or just relax? Make Coffee for Good your destination. It's certainly one of mine. 48 Maple Avenue in the 1858 Stone Solomon Mead House. Open 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Monday through Saturday, closed Sunday. Learn more at coffeeforgood.org. Again, that's coffeeforgood.org. Well, ladies and gentlemen, mark your calendars. Why? Well, the 46th annual St. Patrick's Day Parade will return to Greenwich on March 20th, 2022, kicking off at 2 o'clock p.m. Presented by the Greenwich Hibernian Society, former Greenwich Selectman John Toner will serve as Grand Marshal. Toner will be honored during the Hibernian Association St. Patrick's Dinner Dance on the following day, March 5th. Publicity Chairman James Doherty expressed excitement to see the parade return after two long years and the COVID-19 pandemic. It's been frustrating going through all the planning and getting everything lined up and all set to go and having to cancel it both years, quote-unquote, Doherty said. This year, it looks like we're on, no, we're on no matter what, and we're really excited to make it happen, unquote. We hope it's business as usual. We've reached out to all groups and bands who have marched in the past. So far, it looks like we're getting a good response. Two years off gave us time to research and look into new bands, Zoherty said. Now, he praised Toner and called him a worthy Grand Marshal. Quote, I've known John for quite a while and served on some nonprofit organizations with him, unquote, Zoherty said. And then he continued... He served the town as selectman, and I've never heard anyone say anything but great things about John. He's very active in the community and community-oriented and always looking to help people, unquote. Toner was born in Greenwich, the son of Barclay and Rose Toner, both immigrants from Ireland. After graduating from Manhattanville College, Toner spent two years in Ghana with the Peace Corps teaching English and literature. 
After the Peace Corps work, Toner began a 27-year career in finance with Chase Manhattan Bank, where he eventually became vice president. After retirement, Toner served in the nonprofit sector and in Greenwich Town Government. In 1998, Toner joined the Greenwich Representative Town Meeting in District 2, where he remained until he was named as a selectman in 2015, following the sudden death of selectman Dave Tice. Toner was re-elected and retired in 2019. Over the years, Toner has volunteered with Greenwich Hospital, Coloride, and the Transportation Association of Greenwich, among many other organizations. The announcement of the parade's return comes as COVID-19 cases continue to decline following a surge around the holiday season and into the new year. My friends, you can learn more by going on the web to greenwichhibernians.org. That's spelled G-R-E-E-M-W-I-C-H. H-I-B-E-R-N-I-M-A-N-S, sorry, dot org. St. Patrick is Ireland's patron saint, said to have been born about the year 389 A.D. March 17 does not mark the anniversary of his birth. Rather, it marks the date of his death in year 461 A.D. Now, to many people around the world, St. Patrick's Day is a day worth celebrating. It is a day devoted to paying tribute to the Irish people and their patron saint, in as merry a manner as possible. On the 12th of March, 2022, at noon, join the Greenwich Historical Society staff for a special guided tour of the Bush Holly House, centered around the stories of Josephine Holly and her daughter, Constant Holly McRae, resourceful and entrepreneurial women who ran a bustling boarding house for artists, writers, and other cultural luminaries while pursuing their own personal and artistic pursuits. This hour-long focus tour will detail events and elements of the Holly women's lives in the progressive era, including their business dealings, participation in local civic organizations, and support of women's suffrage, and examine what life and motherhood was like for women in Koskab in the early 20th century. Now, please note that face masks are required for the Bush Holly House tours. Space is limited and pre-registration is required. You can learn more about this at GreenwichHistory.org and look under the events menu. On March 24th, 2022, from 6 p.m. to 7.15 p.m., you can learn more about the extensive research process and primary source analysis involved in the Witness Stones Project, and explore a series of original documents from the Greenwich area which illuminate the economic and legal framework that supported slavery. Greenwich Historical Society Manager of Youth and Family Programs, Heather Lodge, will join the discussion, sharing more about the history of enslavement at the Bush Holly House and highlighting the agency, resistance, and contributions of the enslaved who lived there. This will be led by Dennis Cullenton. He is the founder and executive director of the Witness Stones Project. He served in the U.S. Marine Corps before attending college at the University of Massachusetts, where he received degrees in anthropology and economics. After a decade working for the federal government, he went on to Quinnipiac University, graduating with a Master of Arts in Teaching and History. And while in his third decade of teaching, he started the Witness Stones Project with his students in Guilford, Connecticut. 
Now, the Shining Light Lecture Series, Restoring History and Honoring Humanity, the Witness Stones Project with Dennis Carlton is complimentary. And you can learn more again by going to GreenwichHistory.org and look under the events menu. Also, on March 26, 2022, at noon, you can join the Greenwich Historical Society staff for a special guided tour of the Bush Holly House told through the lives of Patience, Candace, and Hester, three incredible women who lived enslaved in the Bush Holly House during the decades following the American Revolution. In this special hour-long tour, guests will learn the hidden work these women performed that kept the large and prominent Bush household running and the labors of love they accomplished to build their own families a future rooted in freedom. My friends, also once again, please note that face masks are required for Bush Holly House tours. Space is limited and pre-registration is required. The title of this lecture is the Bush Holly House Tour, Womanhood and Enslaved Narratives in the Bush Family Household. If you are a current Greenwich Historical Society member, it is $15 per registrant, and for non-members, it is $20. Again, this is on March 26, 2022, at noon at the Bush Holly House at the Greenwich Historical Society campus in Casca. But again, you can learn more at GreenwichHistory.org. Looking forward to early April, this is a very, very interesting lecture that will be coming up. It's something that uh, I recommend. It's part of the Shining a Light series, Bridgeport's Little Liberia, the Importance of African American Historic Preservation. This is going to be on April 7, year 2022, of course, and it will be from 6 p.m. to 7.15 p.m. And by the way, this is a virtual event. Little Liberia, known as Ethiopia, then Liberia in the 1800s, was a seafaring community of free people of color. It boasted a luxurious seaside resort hotel for wealthy blacks, cited in a letter to Frederick Douglass. Bridgeport's first free lending library, a school for colored children, businesses, fraternal organizations, and churches. Of about 36 structures that comprise Little Liberia, only the Freeman houses survive on original foundations. Mary Freeman, from, who lived from 1815 to 1883, and Eliza Freeman, who lived from 1805 to 1862, were accomplished businesswomen. When Mary Freeman died, the only bridge porter of greater wealth was legendary showman P.T. Barnum. The Freeman houses are listed on the National Register of Historic Places for their significance to African Americans and women. Join the Greenwich Historical Society in welcoming Misa Tisdale. She is the president and CEO of the Mary and Eliza Freeman Center for History and Community as she details the story of Little Liberia and shares the expansion of ongoing efforts to restore and preserve this historic community. Now, Misa L. Tisdale was advocated for the preservation of the Mary and Eliza Freeman houses since 1994 and founded the Mary and Eliza Freeman Center for History and Community in 2009 after coordinating a successful movement to save the homes from demolition. Ms. Tisdale led the Freeman Center as a volunteer until 2019 when she became the Freeman Center's first professional staff member. 
Over the past 10 years, Ms. Tisdale not only focused on the restoration of the Freeman houses, but also worked to create a safer and healthier built environment in Bridgeport's South End, focusing on historic preservation, community development, and climate change. Ms. T- Misa Tisdale was born in the Bridgeport, Connecticut. Her parents, James and Louise Tisdale, were educators and civil rights activists. Their dedication to civil and human rights and the love of history remain Ms. Tisdale's strongest influences. She also studied African and African-American arts and culture in Bridgeport at Youthbridge Incorporated, a theatrical arts workshop from the age of 10 through her early college years. Six generations of Misa Tisdale's family were born or have lived in Bridgeport. This is really exciting. I'd strongly recommend that uh, that you attend this. Uh, it is complimentary, uh, complimentary, free and open to the public. And again, you can learn more at GreenwichHistory.org under the events menu. Well, my friends, I have to tell you, it is hard to believe, but believe it or not, summer 2022 is just around the corner. I know the crocuses are just popping up now, but trust me, it's going to be summer 2022 before you know it. And uh, and good for us when that happens. Reason why I mention this? Well, guess what? My friends of the Greenwich Historical Society have announced that the Art and History Camp for summer 2022 is a go. That's really fantastic news for parents and children alike. Now is the perfect time to start planning summer fun for the children in your life, and we hope that you join the Greenwich Historical Society's Art and History Camp to grow and to learn. Now, at the Greenwich Historical Society's Art and History Camp, Kids learn important skills while exploring Connecticut's colonial history and the works of the Coscop Art Colony through games, crafts, and hands-on fun. Creative young minds will spend time in the Historical Society's Historic Garden and Air-Conditioned Barn, yes, exploring their surroundings using art, science, and old-fashioned ingenuity under the guidance of professional educators and artists. My friends, i got to tell you, space is limited. Now, the Senior Art and History Week campers get to dive through the centuries, exploring both the history of colonial Greenwich and the achievements of the Cuscup Art Colony, and campers will learn the breadth of the traditional crafts of the 18th century, from barn raising to textile production to hearth cooking, alongside the distinctive flair of 19th century impressionism and theater. The best of both centuries is waiting for them. You can also learn more about the Junior History Week campers. They will be transported back in time to Greenwich's colonial era. They will learn about important historical events as well as skills necessary for living in a time without electricity and running water. Campers will have the opportunity to weave, cook, and create colonial art. They will also learn about the importance of a personal garden by interacting with the plants that were grown for cooking, medicine, and creating natural pigments. And also, the Junior Art Week campers, uh, they will learn about the uh, Costco Art Colony and the avant-garde work of the Impressionist artists that stayed at the Bush Holly House. In sessions led by master painter Dimitri Wright, campers will have the opportunity to learn about color, light, and form as they create their own unique works of art. Activities include painting 
and Plain Fair, Exploring Mixed Mediums and Theater. God, this really sounds fantastic. Now, this will be Monday through Friday, 9.30 a.m. to 2.30 p.m. The Senior Art and History Camp will be the uh, in the week of July 11th uh, for grades 5 through 8. Um, junior History Camp will be the week of July 18th for grades 2 to 4. Junior Art Camp, the week of July 25th for grades up 2 to 4. One week goes for $450, two weeks is $800. Have two kids coming the same week? Well, guess what? You can enjoy the Greenwich Historical Society's sibling discount, $800 for two kids, and that comes to a $100 saving. You can also save $50 per week if you register by April 1st. That's going to be coming up uh, rather fast. Sibling and uh, early bird discounts are reflected in ticket prices with those names rather than being subtracted at checkout. That's according to the Greenwich Historical Society's uh, website. There are scholarships available, by the way, and the person to contact would be Heather Lodge. You can contact her at H. Lodge, that's H-L-O-D-G-E at GreenwichHistory.org. You can also call the Greenwich Historical Society at 203-869-6899. Again, that's area code 203-869-6899. And of course, you can always learn more by going to GreenwichHistory.org and look under the education menu and see the designation for Art and History Camp. My friends, as my friends, as we continue to observe the 125th anniversary of the founding of the Greenwich Police Department, we are sadly reminded that um, ours is a an imperfect world, and that um, crime and burglaries and things like that uh, have been uh, part of the landscape of Greenwich <laughs> for a while. Um, and um, the, the following comes from the Greenwich Observer. That was a newspaper uh, that was uh, published in the late 19th century. And the date of this is January 6, 1883, and uh, it comes on the third page. Burglars early on Monday morning broke into the house of Dr. Marshall, Captain Lockwood, Captain W.H. Wilson, Charles Conklin, and John Duff at Cascab and succeeded in making away with a small quantity of money and jewelry and some clothing. At the residence of Mr. Duff, they were frightened off by the sound of a farm horn blown by a young lady, a member of the family, who mistook them for some of the family uh, to whom she intended to wish a quote-unquote happy new year. (laughs) All right, on Tuesday afternoon, a young man popularly known as the, in the village, as Jumbo, quote-unquote, that's not my name, that's in in the story, entered E.S. Burr's restaurant and after disposing uh, of a lunch attempted to depart without paying, therefore. He was promptly stopped and Constable Finnegan called in, who, with the assistance of, of Constable Dayton, conveyed him to the lockup. He was shortly afterwards brought before Justice Russell and fined $8 in costs. Jumbo has thus had the honor of being the first occupant of the new lockup, and it is proposed to call the edifice after him. (laughs) So there you go. 
The following dates from October 13, 1911, it was published in the, the Greenwich News, um, and uh, the headline is Public Playground Started. A strip of land, a strip of ground, sorry, on the hillside back of the Hevemeyer School is being plowed up to be made ready for the new public playground for the children of Greenwich. William F. Decker, who is to give the playground when seeing this work, stated that the playground would be completed right away. Mr. Decker says that it will be equipped sufficiently for the present, uh, though not elaborately, elaborately uh, some people may come to believe. The playground will be modeled on the line to the playground in Bridgeport, which is one of the best in the country. There will be many swings and other equipment, both for exercise and play, for the children. The playground is designed for the use of the boys and girls of all this section during the the school recesses and through the summer. Its location will in no way interfere with the fine athletic field. In January 1942, a story appeared in the Greenwich Time about the uh, proposition, or, or, the, or a proposed, rather, um, bus line that went from, or was supposed to go from Round Hill to Greenwich and, um, and back. I thought I would share this with you. Permission to operate a bus line for, quote, commuters, common laborers, and school pupils, unquote, between Round Hill and Greenwich, has been filed with the Public Utilities Commission by Tuthill and Mead Incorporated of Greenwich. The commission announced today a hearing upon the local firm's application will be held at the commission office in room, I think it's 576 State Capitol, next Friday afternoon, February 6th at 2.15 o'clock. Plans for establishing the line originated with the newly formed Round Hill Improvements Association, which has been negotiating with Tuthill and Mead to supply the vehicles. Under the plans of the association, the enterprise would be underwritten and tickets issued to subscribers and passengers who the association chose to select. In a notice received by the selectmen today, the commission disclosed a letter received from Tuthill and Mead, which is as follows. The Roundhill Improvement Association, a nonprofit corporation, desires to have us run a bus or buses from Greenwich to Round Hill, carrying primarily commuters to and from trains, but also day laborers and school children. The association proposes to pay us on a contract basis for these runs. They, in turn, will issue tickets to their members, which would be collected by our drivers and returned to the association. My original thought on this was that this would be a contract or charter operation, but after further consideration, felt that it would be advisable to have a hearing before your commission uh, in order to receive permission to straighten up any possible difficulties we might run into. Now, my friends, I have to tell you that to the best of my knowledge, this uh, never went through. I don't know why, um, but it doesn't surprise me, but, um, but there it is. <laughs> You know, here in the early 21st century, we take for granted, I think, all of the technological advances that are made uh, literally on a daily, sometimes I think even minute-to-minute or hourly basis. So I saw this article that um, was uh, published in the Greenwich News and Graphic, and it is dated February 
1922, so literally um, uh, just about 100 years ago. And the headline is Wireless Music. Uh, Now, to say the least, this is something that would be uh, quite new uh, to the uh, people of early early 20th century Greenwich, if not the rest of of the world. I thought I would just share this with you. It's not specific to Greenwich, but um, it's a reprint of a story that appeared in the Bridgeport Telegram. And it goes as follows. Westinghouse wireless operators estimate that over 100,000 persons heard a sermon sent out by radiophone. The preacher was Reverend Dr. Charles Lee Reynolds, pastor of the Park Presbyterian Church in Newark, New Jersey. After preaching 20 minutes, Reverend Reynolds said to his invisible audience, quote, at this point in any service, I would take up a collection, but I don't see how I can ask my radio congregation to give me an offering, and I can't ask you to join in singing a hymn, quote, unquote. In a short time, wireless sending outfits will be as common as wireless receiving stations. Before Reverend Reynolds is many years older, he may hear an invisible congregation of wireless telephone operators answer him with a hymn sung by several million voices. Trains on Henry Ford's railroad, the DT and I, soon will be, quote, dispatched, unquote, by wireless No telegraph wires to blow down during a blizzard, balling up the service and imperiling life. Tens of thousands of farmers are getting every night the weather forecasts, crop reports, and market quotations sent out by wireless telephone by the Department of Agriculture. Twice a month, Uncle Sam's Public Health Service broadcasts a wireless telephone health lecture. The amateur wireless operator regularly hears grand opera, instrumental concerts, and college glee clubs. Andreas Dippel, veteran opera conductor, arranges to take grand opera stars to every part of America by vaudeville circuit system. He'd better move fast, for at least seven out of ten Americans soon will be hearing the best opera singers in the world by wireless telephone. This sounds like a myth to people who have not kept themselves informed of the progress of wireless, but it is an actual fact that only a few nights ago, some hundreds of Bridgeporters sat at case in their homes and listened to a complete performance of Grand Opera in the Grand Chicago Opera House with Mary Garden and Muratori in the leading roles. The music was transmitted by Landwire from Chicago to the sending station of the Radio Corp- uh, Corporation of America, RCA, at Ros- Roselle Park, New Jersey, and thence broadcasted by wireless. He would be a daring man who would attempt to predict all the things to be accomplished by wireless in the future. I'm asked time to time about some of the upscale residential parks that dot the landscape of Greenwich. And probably the one that I'm asked about the most is Rock Ridge, which is uh, off of uh, Lake Avenue, just north of the um, Lake Avenue Circle and um, and Glenville Road. Um, and so I found this story uh, that was uh, published in the Greenwich News and Graphic on February 3rd, 1922. And I thought I would just share this with you. Uh, and the headline is The Development of Rock Ridge. In the earlier days of Greenwich, it was said, and justly too, that amid all the farms of the town, distinguished as they were for fertility and for natural beauty, none were superior to, but few could vie with that one known as the Zacchaeus Mead Farm. 
Times change and likewise names. The Zacchaeus Mead Farm is today Rock Ridge, one of the fashionable residence sections of Greenwich. And all that change has taken place in just 22 years. When one comes to think of it, and has been over the Rock Ridge section, such a growth from the conversion of an old New England farm to a locality of beautiful homes, it is remarkable and rather unusual. And in all due to the energy, public spirit, and foresight of one man, he who did so much for Greenwich and other in other ways, Nathaniel Witherell. It was the development of Belhaven, a section of Greenwich once a farm, which grew by leaps and bounds when it was laid out into plots for homes, that induced Mr. Witherell to make another residential section for Greenwich. Belhaven came from the transformation of a farm 38 years ago, certainly a rapid growth in houses and wealth, when it is taken into consideration that all that came about in 12 years, less than half a century. It was in 1884 that four prominent, wealthy, energetic, public-spirited, self-made men started to change a farm into a section of homes. That they succeeded far beyond their expectation, they did not hesitate to say. These four men, all gone now, but they lived to see the fruition of their hopes, were Robert M. Bruce, Nathaniel Witherell, A. Foster Higgins, and Captain Thomas Mayo. They bought the Bush Farm of 100 acres, for which it is said they paid $40,000, a large sum for such attractive land in those days. Look at Belhaven today, and the value of the houses and land is up in the millions. And so Mr. Witherell, seeing what had been accomplished at Belhaven and how it was growing, conceived the idea of buying a farm nearer the village of Greenwich and transforming that into another residential district similar to Belhaven. Thus to Mr. Witherell and to no one else is Greenwich indebted for the development of Rock Ridge. To tell how he started upon his project with but little encouragement and how he worked against odds and finally pushed his undertaking to completion would be to tell the story of men who with patience, ability, and energy accomplish what they set out to do. Zacchaeus Mead's farm seemed just the locality for development. Its wildness, ruggedness, its contour, its rocks and trees and the picturesque brook flow and trees and the picturesque brook flowing through it, all combined to make it especially attractive. Mr. Witherell saw right away that 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 farm would make an ideal residential section to lovers of nature. It was close to the borough of Greenwich and within easy distance of the station. This was long before the days of the automobile. In 1898, Mr. Witherell bought the Zacchaeus Mead farm and started soon afterwards on its development for suburban home sites. In 1899, he threw open the gates of the newly made farm to the public. Over the entrance on the Glenville Road, he placed a large sign in which were the words, quote, visitors welcome, unquote. That is 22 years ago, and just 15 years from the time the development of Belhaven was undertaken, which gives an idea of how Greenwich grew in those days. When he took over the Zacchaeus Mead farm, Mr. Witherell realized that the importance of interfering as little as possible with all that ruralness that made the locality so alluring to those fond of nature in its primitive state. As Rockridge Farm, it retains those beauties of nature— 
for which it was noted, enhanced by the modifying touch of the artist. Rockridge Farm consists of 175 acres, lying between Lake Avenue and Glenville Road, its western boundary being about where Horseneck Brook meets that roadway, a true, truly rural district. When Belhaven was opened some 15 years before, Twould have been a most sanguine optimist who would have volunteered to say that in so short a space of time, another residence district would be a necessary undertaking. The fact that such has been proved to be the case is a most potent argument for the growth and prosperity of Greenwich, if indeed it needed such proof. The name Rockridge Farm rather than Rockridge Park was selected, not from idle affection, but because it more clearly denoted the nature of the place. Its beauties are natural, not artificial. Whatever of artificial attraction has been made has served the purpose merely of increasing and not creating beauty. There are three entrances to Rockridge Farm, one on Lake Avenue, another on the Glenville Road, a third at the west where Brookridge Drive enters the farm. Mr. Witherell's idea was to have Rockridge Farm a settlement by itself, a home community, so to say, in the suburbs, where one could enjoy the delights of the country with all the conveniences of a city. And this has been fully realized. For the water system of the town, sewers and electric lights have all been introduced into the farm, and today its many beautiful houses and well-kept lawns testify to its appreciation by the people. There ran through the Zacchaeus Mead farm two little roadways, or cart paths, called Zax Lane and Woodchuck Lane, whose beauties in the early days are said to have been highly alluring to romantic couples. Mr. Witherell's venture met with such approval that Almost from the opening of the farm, plots were taken, and it was but a short time before it was an assured financial success. This induced Mr. Witherell to buy many acres adjoining Rockridge Farm, which he did for the same purpose of development. The Edgewood Inn, which was built in less than a year on property nearby the farm, was not created as a business proposition entirely, but to facilitate the sale of lots in Rockridge and that locality. The Kent House had much to do with the purchase of lots in Belhaven, for many of the guests of that house sought homes in that section as they recognized how desirable the location was for a suburban home. And so Mr. Witherell, knowing what a factor that hotel had been made in the sale of lots at Belhaven, thought that the Edgewood Inn would be equally as valuable as a factor in inducing people to become owners of plots in Rock Ridge and build homes there. There is no doubt but that the hotel did help to build up that section. The old Zacchaeus Mead homestead is still standing in Rockridge Farm and is on Zach's Lane, so well remembered by old residents of Greenwich since made into a broad and well-paved street. But the house has been so changed and modernized that few would believe that it was an old landmark and the original and the only one remaining on the original Zacchaeus Mead Farm. You have been listening to the 11th of March 2022 episode of the one and only Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast. 
hosted by me, by the one and only, as, as near as I can tell, Jeffrey Bingham Mead. Um, I am a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, long known as the gateway to New England. I'm really glad that you could join us today. I really hope that you enjoyed uh, listening to and learning more about the history of this extraordinary community uh, that we call home, Greenwich, Connecticut. There is no uh, place like this where, uh, where you get to hear about the history and culture of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut. And again, founded on July 18, 1640, Greenwich, Connecticut is one of America's most interesting and extraordinary communities. I say this often, and I, um, I hope I'm, I'm not causing you any pain when I say this, but whether your roots go back 400 years or even 400 seconds or somewhere in between, whether you're here to stay or just passing through, well, we I welcome you with open arms and you're part of our history. And I congratulate you for uh, tuning in and thank you for uh, tuning in as well. Um, I want to remind you that uh, our next show will be on March 18th, 2022. That's a week from today, which is a Friday. And I hope that you will tune in. Be sure to uh, to contact me if you wish at Greenwich at Town for All Seasons at gmail.com. We have a blog site where we post links to the um, uh, to the podcast shows, uh, as well as uh, uh, further information about um, the material that we present. And you can learn more at GreenwichTownForAllSeasons.blogspot.com. It's really been a pleasure being with you today. Thank you so much, and I look forward to being you w- with you again next week. Take care now. Bye bye. <laughs>